Amen. Thanks, guys, for leading us in some song. Now, I've, I've uh, mentioned this before, but um, you know those times where you wake up from a bad dream, and then you kind of have to take a moment to, like, recollect yourself, and you're like, okay, okay, everything's fine, everything's fine, we're back, okay, good, good, and I feel like singing songs like that, being reminded of what Christ has done, Christ alone, Cornerstone, has this way of, of kind of waking up from a dream of whatever kind of week we had, whatever kind of life, whatever's going on, and to, to be reminded that there's hope, and it's just kind of a cool opportunity. I love, like, we get to sing together and just to kind of to prepare our hearts. And so that's what happened for me just now, just singing those songs. And I am so glad to be here with you guys. I don't think I introduced myself. My name is Matt. Hi. Uh, it's always, I consider it a great opportunity and a privilege to be able to share with you guys today from God's Word. Uh, we're actually going to be in Luke 24. So if you want to start flipping there, get, give yourselves a little bit of a head start, go for it. Uh, we're right uh, week three of a new series uh, called Rhythms, and we're looking at the everyday movements of the Christian life. And what we're doing is we're looking at the, the, the specific, the rhythms, the movements, uh, the practices that Christians for centuries have cultivated as a way of nurturing their faith uh, and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so one of those particular uh, practices and rhythms is the, the rhythm of studying or reading and engaging the Bible. Reading and engaging the Bible. So you don't have to be a Christian very long. I mean, it literally takes maybe like two seconds of when you become a Christian uh, that to know that reading the Bible is a very important thing, right? It's, it kind of goes hand in hand with being a Christian. Like, you're a Christian, you got your Bible, like we're supposed to read it. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and I mean, as far back as I can remember, it was like, Matt, read your Bible. Matt, read your Bible. Hey, Matt, did you read your Bible? I mean, it was what we grew up with. I mean, we even had songs for this, right? If you have, if you, come on, if you know these songs, I want you to sing along. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. I'm not done. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That was a good one. Uh, my fave is the B-I-B-L-E. Come on. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And the best part was we yelled, Bible! <laughs> that was the best. And so songs like that actually taught me how to spell, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, no, but Christians over, uh, for all time, they, we, we've understood the importance of reading the Bible. I mean, it's in the Bible that God, it's where God speaks to his people. And uh, we have a high respect and a value for the Bible. Uh, we believe the Bible is infallible, that it's reliable. And then I mean, we say that we love the Bible. And because we do, because it's God's word, it's important that we read it. It's important that we study it. It's important that we, we are part of a church that's faithfully teaching God's word. And so as Christians, we, we intuitively get, we get that. We understand the importance. But here's the thing, and, it, and this is my experience, and I'm sure that's the experience of a lot of you as well, is that we understand that it's important, but at the very same time, that we struggle to understand what the Bible says. We struggle to understand what the Bible means as we are interacting with it. We understand it's very important to read, and yet we have a, such a hard time to understand what it's saying. 
You know, it's about this time of year where we all, we start our Bible reading plans, right? I don't know, actually Seacoast, we, we're actually going through the New Testament as a church together. I encourage you to jump on that. It's not too late. Uh, but Bible reading plans, they kick in the gear in Janu- you know, January. And Bible reading plans are really, they're, they're little um, rhythms for you to read the Bible chunk by chunk. And the idea is to, to read it chunk by chunk and you'll get through the entire Bible in a year or two years or whatever. And so most Bible reading, reading plans start off great. It's like Genesis, all right, sweet. You're in Genesis, you're reading it. There's like some epic stories in Genesis. You're like, this is awesome, I like it. You get to Exodus and you're like, this is cool, this is cool. And you're like, man. I love this. The Bible reading is fun. This is awesome. I'm on a roll. Let's do this. And then one day you wake up and you find yourself in Leviticus. And all of a sudden you're reading about infectious skin diseases and regulations on mildew. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? What's, what's going on? And it, it, it seems so confusing and then, I mean, you continue on and you find yourself in numbers. Because, like, you know, you give yourself that pep talk. You're like, okay, it's, so it's too early to quit. So you give yourself that pep talk and you continue on. You get into numbers. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, there's endless lists of names and genealogies. And you're like, what does any of this have to do with my life? You know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with depression. My marriage is, is in shambles. What does any of this have to do with me here now? So it's no wonder that at that point, so many of us just give up. We give up. You know, actually I read, if you're familiar with uh, the Babylon Bee, it's like the Christian onion. Uh, but there's a, it's, a, it's a site with a Christian satire. And I love this uh, headline that I came across this week. It says, local man sets up more realistic goal of reading Bible until he gets to Leviticus. <laughs> I love it. So we understand that it's, it's important to read the Bible. No one has to tell us that. And, but at the same time, the same people who, would, who we freely admit, like it's important, we also will say it's really challenging. And so I actually came across the video that I think really it perfectly captures what many of us feel like when we are reading the Bible and specifically the Old Testament. Do we have that? For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo-encabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus o delta type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremmy pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the Grammys. <laughs> the turboencabulator has now reached a high level of development and it's being successfully used in the operation of Nofertrunyans. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm 
to reduce <laughs> sinusoidal replenition. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it. I love it. So <laughs> that, I mean, that to me per perfectly describes how I've read the Bible many times. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And so we, we, we know it's important to read, but we struggle. So the question is, where does that leave us? How, how do we, if, if those things are true, and I think for many of us it is true, uh, where does that leave us? And how do we actually grow in this rhythm of reading and engaging with the Bible? And to answer that question, what I want to do today is I want to stay probably at the 20,000-foot view here. I want to kind of just keep us, keep us elevated up here at 20,000 feet and not, and not get into too much of a classroom mode about the specific and detailed how-tos of reading the Bible. I will say this um, parent, uh, in my little parentheses here, uh, that in the bulletin that we, was handed to you at the door, there's some... Um, some questions that we put in there that will help guide your, your reading and stuff. There's, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of tools. But today, what I want to do is I want to step out of the trees. And I just want us to kind of get a, a bird's eye view of the forest of reading Scripture. And really what I want to do today is give us a lens by which we use to read and to come to understand Scripture. And I, I'm going to make a really, what I feel like is a really bold claim right here. I'm going to make a bold claim, but I'm going to stand by it, is that if without this specific lens that we're going to look at today, you and I will never be able to correctly understand Scripture. Without this specific lens that we're going to cover today, you and I will never be able to correctly understand the Bible. Because it's entirely possible Hear me on this. It's entirely possible for us to spend years and years reading the Bible inside and out, line by line, verse by verse, pouring over the pages of the Bible and to completely miss the point of the Bible. It's entirely possible for us to spend our years and years reading line by line all of that and still completely miss the point of the Bible. So that to me feels like a bold claim, is if we don't have this specific lens, none of us here are going to be able to read the Bible correctly. And so I know it's a bold claim, so I need to back it up. And so where is this lens found? What is, what is this lens and where do we find it? And the good news is that Jesus tells us. It's so convenient. Thank you, Jesus. So if you guys will look at Luke 24, we're going to read a story that you might, some of you might be familiar with. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 13 through 35. And a lot of the context is built into this passage, so I'm just going to jump right in. Luke 24, 13 through 35. That very day, two of them, these are two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? 
And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they, they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came and saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening. And the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, Lord, your Holy Spirit would come, be here now to enlighten our hearts, God, that we, that we may see Jesus. And by seeing Jesus, Lord, that we would be set free. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I love this story. I love it for multiple reasons, but one thing I, I really love is that how Jesus provides a lens for how to read and understand the Scripture. And so you have to imagine the scene there, right? The, the two disciples, they're on, their, on this road, and they're just walking, and they're just so sad, and they're, and they're dejected and depressed, and they're just, they're, they're bummed out. I mean, all of their hopes were ruined, and they're suffering from an expectation hangover. Have you ever had one of those? Where you had such high expectations of something, and it did not happen, and it leaves you with that feeling of just like, oh, the expectation hangover, so that they had been let down. They, they had huge expectations of what they thought and what they believed Jesus was going to come and to do, but he had let them down. And all of a sudden, I love it, Jesus, like, he shows up on the road with them. He's, he does the little Jedi move, whatever he did, so they, they don't recognize who he is, and he kind of plays dumb. He's like, what, guy, what's going on? Why so sad? Where have you been? Where have you been? Have you, like, the only guy? You don't know what's been going on? What, has went, what just went down this past weekend? Well, what things? And so th they go on to explain to him why all of those things, like they, we believed that this prophet, Jesus, was the one Messiah. We were banking on him. We thought he was the one who was going to come and to, to, to make Israel great again. We thought he was the one who was going to come and, and redeem and turn the tables and get, get us back on top, out from under the thumb 
of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus was killed, all of their hopes are destroyed. All of their political dreams are dashed. They'd banked their hope on him, and he had failed them. And I love that Jesus is just patiently listening to this. You know, that's what Jesus does. I mean, there's a whole other sermon that could be preached just on Jesus being patient and listening to all the complaining and all of those things that are going on. So Jesus is patiently listening to this, and then he responds, and I love this. He essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing here, do you guys read your Bibles? Do you read your Bibles? The entire Old Testament was pointing to, it was predicting everything that just happened. In other words, if you guys understood what the entire Old Testament was actually about, you wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't be shocked at what just happened. The whole Old Testament was intended to prepare you to get you ready for what just happened. And I'm sure that the disciples were like, like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And then from there, I love it that Jesus goes and gives them probably, what was probably the most Christ-centered, gospel-saturated Bible study of all time. You know, in verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained everything to them concerning himself and all of scripture. This is the entire Old Testament that's being referred to here. Everything that they had read, he points back, he looks at it, he, he, he does, he decodes it for them, and he points it all to Jesus. In other words, he gives them the perfect and proper lens by which to view, to read, and to understand Scripture. He gives them the Jesus lens. So again, it's entirely possible for us to read the Bible, study the Bible, to read it line by line, verse by verse, inside and out, and still miss the point of the Bible. It's entirely possible. It's not like these two disciples were unfamiliar with it. They weren't unfamiliar with the Old, the Old Testament. They had read it. They knew it, but they had completely missed the point of it. Because what we see in verse 21, it reveals what they thought it was all about. Verse 21, it says, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And I know at first that sounds, oh, like, well, that's a good thing, right? Being redeemed. Like, but the context here is that they, they were seeing him as a political redeemer. In other words, they were reading the Bible. They were reading the Old Testament as though it was fundamentally about them. It was about their glory. It was about their pride. It was about their power. It was about their position. That was the lens that they were using to read the Bible. So they knew the Bible, but they had missed the point. In other words, they knew the stories, but they missed the story. And so I know that some of you might be thinking, well, those guys were way off. You know, I don't read the Bible like that. I don't read it with like a political lens as though it's like somehow all about America. You know, I know there's people that do that. I don't know if, the, if some of you are those people, but I mean, a lot of us would say, we don't, we're not reading the Bible in a political way as though it's about America. But here's the thing. You and I still do make the same mistake that these guys made. You and I make that exact same mistake when, you, when we read the Bible as though it's fundamentally about us, our success, our performance, our progress, our imp improvement. It's entirely possible to read the Bible. I would say most of us have the tendency to read the Bible narcissistically. 
You know, it happens all the time. You know, like I remember growing up and hearing the stories that, you know, of all the heroes in the, in the Old Testament, right? And, and the message that I heard, whether it was explicitly stated or I was just implicitly received, the message that I walked away with was, be like the heroes. Be like the heroes. Emulate their lives. Dare to be the Daniel. If you have a strong faith like David, remember the David and Goliath story, if you have a strong faith like David, you too can and should cut the heads off of your giants. You slay your giants and you cut off their head. Let's pray. Like, I mean, that, that was like the, the message that I walked away with. Be like the heroes. And I'm not saying here that it's, it's wrong to take some kind, to, to look at the lives of the men and women in, in the Old Testament or in the Bible and to take away some encouragement, some wisdom, and some warning, if you will. But we make, them big, we make a big mistake when we believe that the moral of all of those stories and the reason that those stories are in the Bible is because it's telling us what we need to do. That's a huge mistake. That's what the two disciples on the road, they read it as though it was all about them. And we tend to do the same thing when we turn the Bible into a divinely sent self-help manual or a moralistic guide for, for better living. Or we, we take it all and we're like, it's timeless principles just to help me have some spiritual success in this life. It's all, all of that, it sounds like good language, it sounds spiritual, but that's all really about me. It's about you, it's about us. It's about our improvement. And then that right there is, is we're making a huge mistake to, to think that that's what the Bible primarily exists to say. The Bible is so much bigger than that. I was thinking about this, like I, back uh, growing up, I had the, you know, you guys had Where's Waldo books? You know, like imagine, imagine picking up a Where's Waldo book and you, you're flipping through it and all you do is just admire the artwork. There's some cool artwork in there. I mean, but imagine all you do is just, you're just like, dude, that's sweet. Look at that. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I mean, literally, if someone says, well, where's Waldo? You're like, I don't care. Look at this picture. This is awesome. I mean, literally, finding, finding Waldo is literally the point of the Where's Waldo book. And so I think we do the same thing with the Bible. But the, we have to know that the Bible, it tells us an amazing story. And you and I are not at the center of that story. Jesus is. He's the hero. He's the rescuer sent by God to right all wrongs, to fix everything that we broke, and to reconcile fallen, broken human beings like you and me to God. And I love how one author put it. He says, the focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the redeemer. I've shared this before, but I think it's, it's so good. The Jesus Storybook Bible, a little, little product placement, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible is, is an amazing resource. I highly recommend getting this. So it's not just a kid's book. It, it definitely is a kid's book, but I recommend that every adult read through the Jesus Storybook Bible because every, every story in here, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, connects it back to Jesus. And I've read this before, but I think it's worth reading it again. And this comes from the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible. She writes, now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. 
they make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It, t- it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you, s- you can see a beautiful picture. I love that. And so it's not enough to just read, read the Bible like the two disciples did. We need to learn to see Jesus in all of the Bible. Every story whispers his name. You see, the Bible, it, and guys, I, I think I'm so passionate about this because I, lived, I grew up in the church and I didn't know I didn't hear this. I didn't know this. And so that it's coming out of a place of like, this is important to know. And it has changed the way that I'm reading the Bible. But every story is telling one story. The entire Bible is one, it's one story and it points to one figure, namely Jesus. And the Old Testament is all, it's pointing to and predicting and, and, and showing us a picture of Jesus. And then the New Testament is presenting that hero, that rescuer, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible's telling one story. And, and I, all the way back in Genesis 3, we actually hear that first whisper of a rescuer who will one day come and fix the mess that we made. I don't know if you remember the story, but in, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they've, they've rebelled. And then God, it's caused God to curse everything that he had made. And right after that, God makes this amazing, amazing promise. He says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And really, that's the first promise that we find in Scripture. And what that is saying is that one day, there's going to be someone who comes and fixes everything that we broke. There's going to be someone who comes and rights every wrong. And the rest of the Bible... On, all throughout the Bible is the, the unveiling, the unfolding of this Jesus-centered plot line, this rescue plan. And so we, when we read the Bible, we read it rightly only when we read it through that lens, that lens of the gospel, when we see Jesus in everything, through everything. And we see that Jesus is the hero of the story, not you, not me, in other words, the focus of the Bible is not our work and our ascent to God. The focus of the Bible is God's work for us in Christ and his descent down to us. And if you really think about it, at the end of the day, making the Bible about us as though we're the center, we're the hero, all that really does is just places more burden on our shoulders, does it not? That's slavery 
True freedom doesn't come from a life centered on me, my work, my performance, my victory. Again, believing that is an invitation to slavery, where it's all about you, it's all what you can do. No, true freedom comes from seeing Christ at the center, his work, his performance, his victory on our behalf. And that changes the way that we read the Bible. And so, for example, mentioned David and Goliath earlier. You remember that story? Israel, they're at, they're at war with the Philistines, and they're kind of at this, this standstill. And Israel, what we see in that story, is just too afraid. They're, they're, they're too afraid to go and to fight Goliath, the giant. So we see David, this, this little teenage boy, he steps up, he steps in, and he stands in the gap. He stands in the gap between God's enemy and the people of God. And then we see he, he steps up, he brings his, his, single, his little slingshot, he like hits, hits the giant down, giant falls, cuts off his head, game over, game over. And he, he takes care of God's enemy on behalf of the people. And what's interesting is that victory was given, that victory was given over to the, 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 the sissies that were standing in the background, too afraid to even lift a finger, too afraid to enter the fight. That victory that David wins, it, goes, it is attributed to the sissies in the background. And so when we read the Bible through a Jesus lens, the story is it's not about us defeating our giants. It's not about us having enough faith and mustering up enough faith to conquer our giants. No, we're not David in that story. If we read it as though we're David, we're reading it wrongly. We're the sissies in the background. We're the, the people that are too weak and too afraid to actually lift a finger, to actually step into the gap and step into the fight. Jesus, he's the true and better David who stands in the gap to conquer sin and death. And what's cool is that his victory becomes our victory, even though we did nothing to contribute to it. And so seeing more of Jesus, seeing his size, his bigness, his glory, this changes us. You know, I was reading, uh, preparing for uh, today, I was reading in Hebrews uh, there's a, you know, the hall of faith, there's a, there's a chapter in Hebrews 11, and it kind of, it's like this list of all of these people in the Old Testament who had amazing faith, and they're commended for that faith, and right in, in Hebrews 12, 12, 1, we read this, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and I don't know about you, that's Hebrews 12, 1, we usually stop right there, we usually stop. Like, okay, sweet. We go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get rid of the sin that clings so closely. I'm going to run this race with endurance. And then we get uh, 10 feet down the road and our engine conks out. <laughs> Why? Well, because we didn't read 12 verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Other translations say the author and the perfecter. So all of that stuff happens, that, 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 that getting rid of the, the sin and running that race, it happens by looking to Jesus, seeing Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And that does not come naturally because we are all, our nat what comes naturally is to see, the, see it as though it's about us and fixing our eyes on ourselves. But may we be people that fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on his work, for us. We will spend the rest of our lives excavating the scriptures and seeing Jesus throughout it all. 
There's no way one sermon can accomplish that. It's really the rest of our lives. That's why we call it rhythms. It's, a, it's a, the rhythm of seeing Jesus. So we'll spend the rest of our lives doing that, but I came across a video I want to show just to close us that will whet your appetite for that. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Uh, another thing, I love that. <laughs> uh, another thing about this story that really stands out is that the two disciples, they find themselves around the table with Jesus. And the entire time they've been with him, their eyes have been kept from recognizing him, right? And there was something Jesus did in that moment. He, he broke the bread and he handed it to him. And it was that, that moment that their eyes were opened. When they saw Jesus break the bread and hand it to them, 
Their, their eyes were open and they saw him. It's Jesus, which means at that moment, their hope was restored. It wasn't, their dreams weren't dashed. Their hopes were, their hopes were restored. Their, the true hope of, of Jesus, he's alive. It is finished. And that changed everything. And in the same way, we get to come to the Lord's table and to receive the bread, receive the cup, to have our eyes once again opened to remember what it costs to bring us home, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take the next few minutes. The band's going to play a song. And when, you, um, when you're ready, just, you can make your way over to one of the tables that are around the room and take the bread, the bread that was given for you, re- represents the body that was given for you and the blood that was shed for you, the forgiveness of sins. And so we'll spend some time lingering in that moment, seeing Jesus, being thankful for what he accomplished for us. Let's do that now.